up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to reach tall buildings at a single pound. This amazing stranger the planet Krypton. The Man of Steel. Who are you? A friend. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman. 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 This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Well, hello there. This is episode 47 of Superman Forever Radio, and I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. This week, the first of three parts covering the Black Ring Saga which was an ongoing storyline of 12 parts appearing in Action Comics 890 to 900 with a stop-off in Secret 6 number 29 to boot. This was the storyline that was current as Superman Forever Radio first began airing in 2010 alongside Grounded in Superman. Honestly, this story was a breath of fresh air after World of New Krypton. It is, it's a great story, um, but it's one of the big flaws of the end days of the post-crisis universe, in my opinion. This is also the final Lex Luthor story of the post-crisis era. Now, that is, unless you consider the break with Infinite Crisis, a true break, a true reboot. Um, I've gone on to rethink my position on that. Because it, it's it been reflected in the New 52, um, unlike the hard reboot we saw there, this reboot maintained the marriage. Um, a lot of storylines were referenced and taken as canon. It was a retcon. It was maybe a new coat of paint, but it was not a full-on reboot. So for me, in retrospect, um, the time frame I used to cover is an extension of the From Crisis to Crisis era. So this is, to me, the end of the Lex Luthor we first saw in Man of Steel way back in 1986. And as far as last stories go, it's not a bad way to go at all. And the story says volumes about Luthor. So let me give uh, some context before we begin about what we're about to cover, sort of what had occurred previously. As we enter the story, World of New Krypton had been going on for almost two years. It ran through Superman, Supergirl, World of New Krypton miniseries, Adventure Comics. We had a one-shot here and there. Action Comics, as well as two smaller miniseries, Last Stand of New Krypton, and War of the Superman. Now, during this time, Superman wasn't in his own books. Uh, Monel starred in Superman, while Action Comics starred Chris Kent and his sidekick as Nightwing and Flamebird, which was a big point of contention as the storyline went on and on and on. Now, enter this new blood. Um, Straczynski was coming on Superman to do Grounded. The rumor was, and I've seen nothing to really contest this, 
The rumor was that when J. Michael Straczynski stepped foot on Superman as an ongoing series, he wanted the character all to himself. He made an edict that Superman couldn't appear in any of the other books. Well, that seems to bore fruit because Lex Luthor became the main feature in Action Comics. And I think that with what was becoming event fatigue, very clear event fatigue, I'm sure they were seeing the feedback. DC knew they needed something to jumpstart after fans got tired of the prolonged new Krypton. So with Straczynski on Superman, with that storyline getting much, much buzz, DC went to Paul Cornell to write Action Comics, which would now feature Lex Luthor in the time period. Cornell was mainly known as a Doctor Who writer. That was kind of his stock and trade. Um, he was a, his uh, career started with writing a fan fiction, which won a big contest, and led to him professionally writing Doctor Who novels, episodes, and Doctor Who comics. Um, he came over to other comics uh, over here in America with the Wisdom miniseries based on Pete Wisdom, spinning, uh, spinning off of Excalibur and uh, the later issues of X-Force. And then Cornell wrote the very critically acclaimed Captain Britain MI3 for Marvel, which while it didn't really get a lot of financial backing, um, it got a lot of support. It had a very good groundswell, grassroots following. Very well critically acclaimed. And the Doctor Who influence, the Doctor Who mentality on science fiction is going to become very apparent at the tone of the story and kind of fits what we're about to see. Now, joining Cornell was Pete Woods on art. Uh, Pete Woods had, had done some uh, some things with Superman. He actually just came off some new Krypton arcs. Uh, but he came from a background at Wildstorm, which included doing the Backlash series or miniseries. And he actually had a very long stint on the Robin Solo series. So he was no stranger to standard comics, unlike Cornell, who you wouldn't think of as being a tights and cape guy. Uh, very interesting team. Uh, Cornell was a very unconventional choice for a Superman book. Um, but add to that David Finch, um, who would later go on to do Batman the Dark Knight on covers. And you've got a very nice, interesting book with a, a solid creative team. Um, but the book being this level of quality became heavily problematic for me. It was very much promoted. Um, both of these storylines, but this and Grounded, were very much promoted. They were very much in the forefront. Um, Grounded getting a little bit more of that because of Straczynski and pairing that with Wonder Woman. But at the same time, I is as good as this story is, and, and as we play this out, you're going to see how great I think it is and why I think that, that and where the weaknesses actually are. It wasn't what fans wanted following um, New Krypton. And it created this problem, as I saw it, in those waning days of the post-Infinite Crisis, post-Crisis era, that it became a better read than Superman himself. Um, it, it started a time in which the books that were hitting shelves that were part of the Superman family, the stronger of the books were Supergirl, Action Comics with Lex Luthor, uh, Jeff Lemire's Superboy, which kind of had this snowball effect. Uh, it didn't start out great. But it ended up being well at the point it needed to be at the end, right as it got canceled. Uh, Red as a whole, it's fantastic, and I do plan on covering that next year. But that caused a problem that I think, I think it left this gap in fandom 
that really probably led to the bitterness or at least contributed to the bitterness of the new 52 because you know a lot of fans and myself included I'm not going to I'm not going to hedge around that felt that you could fix the problems with the character simply by putting the focus in the right place now I say this as a as more of a, a warning um that I understand that I understand what this contributed to um, it was a very must-read book during a time that Superman was not getting what I feel would have been his fair shake in his own books. But I want to say that so I acknowledge it up front and then leave it there. Because what I'm looking at is the story quality in itself. Um, and in the story quality itself, it is a fantastic read. And we're going to be doing this over the next three episodes, four issues in, uh, an, ish, an episode. I am going to be leaving out uh, the backup features, which we have a Jimmy Olsen, a few previews. I'm also going to be leaving out Action Comics Annual 13. I considered it for inclusion because, after all, it is the last Action Comics Annual before the reboot. But it just doesn't contribute to the story overall. Um, interesting tidbits about Darkseid and Rachel Ghoul and the way they first met Lex. But ultimately, nothing big there. So let me make sure I've got my my preamble taken care of. Make, make sure I've got my warnings out of the way. I acknowledge that this was during a time when Superman probably should have been rocking action comics, but wasn't. Uh, we had a lame, uh, semi-lame storyline and grounded. And I do want to revisit that at some point as a whole um, to, 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 to create a different mindset for me. Because I know I prejudged that book quite a bit. Uh, but... It's it's widely regarded, fairly correctly, as, as not the greatest Superman story. And fair enough. Um, and this is also a part of a tie-in. Because during New Krypton, not only did we have this massive, massive uh, crossover, we had several crossovers within it. Um, one of them being Blackest Night. And this came about at the end of Blackest Night, or after the end of Blackest Night. And that kind of leads me to setting up the context of what we're about to walk into. Um, while it's not a story that was ongoing, it is the result of the events in Blackest Night because it's an offshoot of that. Now, Blackest Night, to give you the very, very brief version of the story, was supposed to be a Green Lantern crossover that became a DC-wide crossover. Actually, an excellent one, but a crossover nonetheless during a time when event fatigue was at an all-time high. But the concept was the dead of the DCU rose by way of Black Lantern rings. Um, at this point, DC had extended the Green Lantern world to include many colors, each with their own emotional touch point. You know, red for rage, yellow for fear, orange for envy. And the black was death. Uh, we would learn white would be life of some kind. But um, while I say the dead rose, it actually, the rings sort of made constructs with bits of memories from the dead so they didn't really rise but some characters did come back but in the battle um, others were given temporary power um, in the darkest hour each lantern spectrum was able to choose one person to temporarily bestow that power on now as i mentioned orange was the color of envy and lex luthor gained the orange lantern power and made himself an orange armor and now this is the aftermath uh, the power's gone away, the black rings have dissolved, the day is saved, but Lex is obsessed with the power that he briefly held, which opens us up to the black ring with Action Comics 890, 
which was cover dated August 2010, but went on sale June 30th of that year. This bad boy had three, count them, three covers. The first cover has Lex in an orange lantern armor. It was done by David Finch with uh, inker Joe Weems. And he's kind of hunching towards the reader, fist bared. I love this. Um, standing in a desolate street. Uh, not even desolate, it's, it's jacked up. Uh, it's all torn up. Uh, skulls at the bottom. Fist uh, shaking at us. The other, the alternate cover was Lex in a business suit, also by David Finch. Um, very simply, Lex is in his towering safety of his Lex Towers. Um, Metropolis is spread out behind him in a window, and he's standing there in his business suit. I like the contrast of these two covers because the Orange Lantern Luthor, which in the reprint, um, we get kind of a replication of that image, except in that one, Lex is in his green armor, standard power armor, that we would know sort of the uh, tweaked version of the superpowers armor. And that was also by David Finch and Joe Weems. But juxtaposing these two images, we have Lex down on the ground, place torn up, ready to throw down. Then we have a very serene Lex in the safety of his own domicile. Um, where, you know, something like the destruction we see on the streets probably wouldn't be noticeable because you just see the tops of the skyscrapers. Um, but good covers, very good way to kick this off. Not all of these have alternate covers, and some of them have very odd alternate covers that I'm going to get into later. But this story is The Black Ring, Part 1, written by Paul Cornell with artist Pete Woods, letterer Rob Lay, colorist Brad, a- uh, Brad Anderson, awesome, Brad Anderson, and editor Matt Idelson. And we open with Lex hanging upside down at the mercy of three mystery villains. Lex is completely calm and collected, though. In fact, he's meditating. One of the villains, who seems to be either a cyborg or an android, which we never get clarification on, but he asks what Lex is thinking about, since, you know, Lex is hanging many, many, many stories about the streets of Metropolis. And Lex tells him, I'm thinking about how I got here. Which triggers a flashback to one week earlier. Lex was obsessively searching for the Black Lantern energy. Since I mentioned the the rings we saw in the Blackest Night disintegrated, Lex is convinced that even though that occurred, that energy is still out there. So they're working on a a scanner to try to track this down when a scientist under Lex's employee tells him that they just can't increase the power to what Lex is asking. So Lex tells his assistant, Spaulding, to fire the man and spread enough rumors to make sure the man never works again. This sends the scientist into a rage, and he has a family to feed. Lex just doesn't understand, so he goes crazy and manages to whack Lex on the head with some kind of blunt instrument. Later, in fact the night before the story's opening, Lex is having dinner with Lois Lane. Wait, what? Yes, Lois Lane. Now, if you've read this story, if you're familiar with it, you chuckled. If not, if you have not read this, prepare for an explanation in just a moment. But Lois is offering to cover the concealer, uh, pardon me, to cover the bruise from the scientist's attack with concealer. But Lex refuses and finally gets up, pulls up a man named Sasuke up on a communicator, and orders Sasuke to kill the scientist, which Sasuke does with a sniper rifle just as the man is sitting down to the dinner table with his family. Lex tells Lois that, well, he can't show mercy. And Lois asks, why did you fire the man in the first place? And since Lex doesn't have a great answer, he allows Lois to apply concealer to his bald noggin. Lex really does try to explain what it was like to have the power of the Orange Lantern, the power that he saw there. Because if only she had experienced what that power made him desire, 
she might understand. So Lex shows Lois a computer-generated scenario of the outcome to him having that much power, which includes many, many people kneeling at Lex's feet, including his dead father, which Lois notes. Lois tells Lex to sleep on it tonight and approach his obsessive quest for power in the morning, which brings us to the day that we began just a bit earlier from the opening of the book. Lex uses a machine called an isopod, which is kind of like an immersive sensory deprivation tank combined with the ultimate computer, and he discovers a change to the pattern of the universe. And this is a new pattern caused by the destruction of the Black Rings, and now he has a map of that pattern, which means he can actively seek out this location of each and every energy and track them down. So Lex begins to prep for this great quest, including tuning up his green power armor and tuning up Lois because she is a robot made from Brainiac technology. That's right, you heard me. That's right. Lex made a robot of Lois Lane with Brainiac technology. Bear with me. Um, when the captors crash into the building, it is revealed that Lois can also sprout really, really big guns out of her arms. Out of her arms. So... Her guns have guns. This was something I saw replicated on Young Justice recently. Very excellent look. But it clearly doesn't do much good. And we're back on the roof from the opening scene. And the lead cyborg or android, whatever he is, well, it doesn't matter since, well, the one pulling the strings behind these, which Lex totally calls, reveals himself by bursting out of the guy's head. And it's Mr. Mind and the issue ends with Lex within his power. So going back to the opening. We open with an odd scene because Lex is hanging on the roof. And then we play with time. We go back a week, one day, to the present day. Boom. I think this is an excellent way to open it. Um, I love that Lex is smug despite being, well, held captive above the city. Um, excellent way to begin. I don't recognize the three characters that are holding him hostage. Um, and I tried to Google them. I tried everything I could to search it out. We have a girl with pigtails and goggles, uh, sort of steampunky. Uh, we have a man with an inset-like helmet. And then the main mouthpiece I was speaking of, he looks like a 1940s fighter pilot. Not quite steampunk-like, but very reminiscent of the Rocketeer. Um, this guy actually states what kind of dialogue he is going to use, which reminds me of Red Tornado. Uh, for example, um, statement, you, you must think about your situation. Now, the dialogue is written with pauses and breaks, uh, indicating some sort of expression. I hear it in my head like Corey Burton does Brainiac. Very calm and collected. But, jumping ahead to the scientist and the attack. That was a good question Lex, or Lois posed. Why did Lex fire the man? Because he said No. So did he wound Lex's ego? Did he get in the way of Lex's obsession? Is Lex that obsessed that one little no is going to have him run a life? Well, don't rule it out. We've seen weirder things from Lex. Come on now. Now, we never get the name of the scientist. Uh, we don't know how long the man has worked there at LexCorp. So I'm wondering if this is somebody who was there, well, when Lex was governing before because lex was removed following infinite crisis for crimes on humanity while well, following before infinite crisis because of his whole presidency um, we had talia looking over it talia i'll go for a brief bit and then lana lang so we don't know this man's background how long he's been there he was maybe even somebody lana brought on board uh, but the scientist lived the dream 
he stepped up to Luthor and knocked him in the face. Which cost him in the end, but hey, he did it. He's going to be a legend around the water coolers. Uh, in the scene where Lex is talking with Lois, the bruise represent, he says that the bruise represents a real experience. I think that's a weird dialogue because Lex has experienced a lot um, in the last few years of continuity of the, of the Superman mythology. He was president. Um, he was removed from president. He was copied. He was basically reduced to nothing and rebuilt himself. I'd say Lex has had a lot of real experiences, and I don't know that that was something Lex would be seeking out on a normal basis. Yet, we are dealing with a bit of a changed Lex. Uh, these experiences did take their toll on him. He, I would say he doubts himself. I don't think he doubts his abilities, but I think he doubts the limitations of his abilities or the focus that he's made. Or maybe he's looking, I think more accurately, he's looking for a way to make those abilities go further and further. And Lois is a good idea. Um, not only story-wise, because it definitely grabs your attention and then keeps it throughout the story. But let's be honest, Lex always had a thing for Lois in the post-Infinite Crisis universe. She was somebody who damaged his ego early on. So it makes perfect sense that he would choose Lois as kind of a, a mouthpiece that is kind of antagonistic yet in a sweet way. And I am torn on how I feel about the way Pete Woods draws uh, Lois. She is modeled very, very clearly, very bluntly after actress Zoe Deschanel. And while I have a great thing for Zoe Deschanel, it still feels like she wouldn't be right for the Lois because I hear her voice. And while the way she talks is adorable and slow and kind of sleepy, it doesn't fit the lowest lane in my head, even on a robot version. Um, but I do like that Lex has people on payroll that will hang out on a rooftop with a sniper rifle and just wait for Lex to make a decision to call and snipe somebody. And Sasuke's also kind of scary because he doesn't hesitate. He says, sure thing, gets it done right then and there. He, the, he just kills the guy in front of his kids and his family. There is a shot of his kids and wife surrounding the body of this slain scientist. Uh, I think, if anything, this proves that we are dealing with a, a more ruthless Lex than we had been presented. He had kind of gone soft for a little bit um, in the time that we had Lena Luthor. Um, he, we had the presidency in which he was really snide, but we found out that's not really him. So this is something saying Lex ain't messing around. And then we have Lois challenging Lex on top of that. So we've got a ruthless Lex, but we have Lois challenging that. So we've almost got the Jiminy Cricket to to Lex's Pinocchio trying to become a real boy with this power. And, you know, she asks that challenging question, why did you fire him? Lex can't answer. Um, we're kind of seeing him submit a little bit. But while, while Lois does represent sort of the, the other side, the, the you know the devil's advocate um, against Lex's men, uh, and, and you know mentality. Way to go. Way to stutter. Lex's mentality. I'll, I'll just straighten it out. Lex concedes and lets her apply that concealer. He's conceding to himself in a way because the AI was still created by him. Uh, it's a bit odd, but I like it that we still have Lex really playing his own devil's advocate in the programming. I also dig that when Lex stands against the window, the reflection that's looking back 
is him in the orange lantern armor. And the question is, is he seeing what he wants to see in himself or is he seeing how he actually sees himself? Does he see that power within himself? I'm not sure. Um, and Legs shrugs all of this off, saying he really... He just shrugs off in Blackest Night, saying, I really want to be Superman while under the the power of Wonder Woman's magic lasso. Um, because he just says, well, it's just one of the things the ring makes you desire. Now, if you look at Larflees, who is the lone Green Lantern, or Orange Lantern, because of greed, he took it from everybody else. Larflees desires everything, so Lex may be correct... Hmm. But of course, let's be honest, Lex uh, Lex just wanted to be the most powerful man in under Burns' rule, but what Jeff Johns put into that was another layer, another way of saying the same thing, sort of a more focus that Lex wanted to be the hero. He wants to be the one that everybody looks to to save them. Now that's based on ego rather than Superman's altruism, but when Lex looks at that that looks back at saying, I really want to be Superman. Is he referring to the idea that he wants to be the hero or is he referring to, he literally wants to be Superman. The answer might startle you to be honest. And as I mentioned, Lois was brought on to challenge Lex. And I think there is no more appropriate character to challenge the villain to go beyond his himself than Lois because she challenges Superman to be better. Lois gave Superman a face to fight for. When he rescues somebody, it's Lois's face that he sees. Now, Luthor wants not necessarily to be a better Luthor, to be more powerful, to have more, um, to become that person that everybody looks to. It's all about ego. But it is ironic that she kind of serves in a twisted way, the same role that she plays for Superman. Um, the scene that I mentioned in which we look at the hologram, um, in which a lot of characters are kneeling, I did note, uh, A, this reminds me a lot of whatever happened to the man, of, or for the man who has everything, the Alan Moore story. But as I pointed out, it includes his dad. And I wondered to myself, would Lex resurrect his father just to rub that much power in his face? And to me, the answer is, you betcha. Um, the energy that Lex mentions. So the black rings have dissipated, but that energy has got to be out there. Lex is actually correct. Uh, he is a genius after all, because science tells us energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be converted. So all of that energy that would be powering the black lantern, sling, black lantern rings had to go somewhere. So Lex is absolutely right. And he's on the right path. And yes, this Lois is a robot. She's a robot with big guns. I dig that. It's fun, but it's appropriate too. Not just because of what I mentioned where she challenges Superman, but Lex has also always had a thing for Lois. And throughout this issue, we never get an out and out confirmation that they are romantic, but ew. And then we end with Mr. Mind showing up, which begins the trend of meeting another villain or anti-hero each issue. Now, Mr. Mind, who we're about to look at, uh, made his first appearance in Captain Marvel Adventures number 26 from 1943. He is a caterpillar, a small worm. Um, but don't let that fool you. I mean, yeah, he has big glasses, or did, and he has this little voice box. He looks demure, but he formed the Monster Society of Evil, which was horrific. 
Uh, and in that story, he was arrested. He was put on trial. He went to the electric chair and they stuffed his body and put him in a museum. I kid you not. So speed ahead to the DCU, especially the current DCU, current for this story. In 52, Mr. Mind pretended to be Skates, uh, which is Booster Gold's robot. And then Mr. Mind ate the Phantom Zone. Um, he grew very, very powerful. And I believe that was more of a Grant Morrison trope. But basically, that Mr. Mind got bound in a time loop. So, kind of a shocker to see Mr. Mind show up, a Captain Marvel villain. And that leads us directly into Action Comics number 891, cover dated September 2010, with an on-sale date of July 28th of that year. Once again, the cover is by David Finch with Minker... Minker. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a new position called a Minker. I don't know what they're going to do, but it's going to be awesome. The inker is Mr. Matt Banning. The cover features a cackling scientist Lex Luthor with a large Frankenstein monster in a Superman suit bearing a resemblance to Bizarro, which is ironic because we're going to see him much later in this episode, not within the comics. Uh, but it's very evocative. It definitely is an eye-catching. I just don't have a lot to say on the covers. As a whole, that's pretty universal. Uh, this is The Black Ring Part 2, written by Paul Carnell, with artist Pete Woods, penciled by Carlos Alberto Fernandez Urbano. No, I kid you not. So apparently he had some fill-ins here and there. Uh, it is inked by Javier Bergantino, lettered by Rob Lee, colored by Brad Anderson, and edited by Matt Idelson. Now somewhere, sometime, Luthor talks to his crow Magnan cohorts, looking up at a palace on a high hill, guarded by a trio of statues, and he decides to rush in, stealing the fire held within. Lex does so, distracting the guard, and he takes the flame and gets chased by one of the statues. But Lex is crafty and uses decorative drapes within the palace to trip the statue and brings the fire down the hill to the people. And Lex hold the flame, holds the flame aloft and states that he did it all by himself. In reality, this is an illusion projected by Mr. Mind, who wants Lex to fantasize, and he tells somebody seen off-screen that he isn't getting the results that he wants with his fantasy. So, he tries something else. Fantasy number two has Lex playing Dr. Frankenstein, with Lois as his assistant, looking on his creation, which is hidden by a sheet. Overcoming his dread and fear of what he will see under the sheet, Lex throws back the cloth to see himself on the table. Lois tells Lex that he works best when others are doing his bidding. And once again, we return to Mr. Mind, who simply is not getting the results he is looking for. So he changes his game again. Lex's Frankenstein fantasy ends with villagers raiding his lab and splitting he and Lois away from each other. And suddenly Lex is in the Old West. So Lex is now a sheriff and Big Red is in town, an outlaw in blue with a red duster. And Lex enters the street and prepares to have a shootout, but instead shoots his own deputy to seek out the real villain here. At this point, Mr. Mind panics a bit and enters the fantasy himself, holding Lois at gunpoint. And the standoff doesn't last long, because Lex has used his noggin to figure out that this is a fantasy and Lois isn't real, forcing Mr. Mind's hand. So, Mind pulls out the big gun, a giant version of himself, but Lex bursts open his shirt and pulls a, well, he pulls a Superman. Flying up to punch the giant caterpillar as he is also taking control of his motor functions in the physical world and kicks Mr. Mind off the very real rooftop we saw left Lex at left last issue. And Lex is returned to reality and the remaining two cronies of Mr. Mind ask for mercy 
which Lex is willing to give, assuming they tell him everything he wants to know. Later, Lex analyzes the fantasies, which seem to be telling him that he didn't need help from anyone. So judging by that, Lex decides that he needs help, and his exposition to find the Black Ring energy will require a team, which includes Lois, and also one new member, Deathstroke the Terminator. So as I mentioned, um, weird cover, bizarro-looking cover. No alternate cover on this one. But as I open the issue, it's like, wait, cavemen? Really? Um, it, it threw me. It threw me for a very, very big loop. And I'm not sure how I feel about it. Uh, definitely attention-getting once again, but definitely a big, jarring attention-getting moment. Uh, page two, we uh, the palace I mentioned, the three statues. It's not directly the DC Trinity of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, but a very obvious illusion. And an ironic one, actually, because we have three statues. We have two men and a woman. The man in the center is this Adonis-looking guy with his arms outstretched. Uh, the guy to that statue's right is cloaked and hooded. You don't see his face. And then we have a woman, uh, very stately, holding fruit. The man in the middle is the, is the one that actually chases Lex in the scene. He has an emblem across his chest, which is not a diamond or a shield. It's actually a lightning bolt. Now, this is ironic because, well, Mr. Mind is a Captain Marvel villain. And we're seeing kind of an allusion to Captain Marvel along with Superman. But it's a very clear indication of the Trinity and maybe a nice little wink in the lightning bolt department. Um... Lex is really experiencing a lot of envy uh, that Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman hold. More the perception of what Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman hold than what he sees as the reality. Um, on page three, the guard in front of the ca- the palace very much has a Kryptonian vibe, but more actually looks like a checkmate soldier if you want to Google DC's checkmate from the 80s. And Lex stealing the fire is kind of cool. It's a very Promethean moment, which is kind of a backhanded Frankenstein reference. Um, I mentioned this with the Promethean, which is in that Shazam episode. Uh, But, you know, Frankenstein was titled the modern Prometheus, uh, made an illusion that Victor Frankenstein was stealing fire from the gods and bringing it to, to humanity for whatever purposes and ended up paying for it, much like Prometheus did. And here we have another allusion to that right before we're going into a Frankenstein fantasy. On page seven, it was, it took me a very long time. Um, I had a lot of uh, debate with myself about, is Mr. Mind breaking the fourth wall? Is he talking to you or I reading the book? The answer is no, but kind of a cool question. It does throw you off at this early stage in the game. Sorry to put a spoiler in there, but, uh, you know, these things happen. Um, moving on, I'm starting to you see the, the obvious reference in this Frankenstein fantasy that Lex believes himself to be a self-made man. While that's true, a lot of the material that he made came from other places. Uh, after all, he made his first fortune out of a life insurance policy he took out on the dad that he killed. But if he didn't have a dad to kill, wouldn't have worked very well. Which is probably overthinking that massively. Um, and really, looking at the dream sequences, especially in with pages 13 and 14, very much reminiscent of the movie Inception. And it's odd because Inception would come out in July of 2010. 
So it was actually released when roughly right after the first issue of this storyline came out, after 890 came out. But that means while this was being written, the core concept of the movie was out, but not necessarily the, the movie itself. So just a neat coincidence, and hey, that's a killer movie. Page 15, Cowboy Lex looks like Yul Brenner from Westworld. Pretty dang certain that's intentional. Uh, page 16, as Lex shoots his deputy, he calls himself the anti-Bob Marley, making me wonder what kind of music does Lex listen to. I know he digs some classical, but does he crack out some Bob Marley on his iPod when he's thinking late at night? Uh, now, while Lex, you know, does look kind of stately and kind of Yul Brenner looking, Mr. Mind and Cowboy Gear, that's a laugh riot. And I, it's intended to be. I don't think that's meant to be taken seriously at all. But he also has a full-size pistol that doesn't fit in his little nub of a hand. I dig that a lot. Um, and Mr. Mind tells us on page 19 that he's an offspring of the original Mr. Mind, which is why he's not a butterfly. Uh, they have memories tied in some RNA strands, which Lex doesn't care. And Lex makes a really good dig by saying, I'm just winging it here. Kind of digging on the inferiority complex. Way to go, Lex. Always manipulating. But it doesn't work. Um, pages 22 and 23, Lex does that shirt rip I mes mentioned. Let's combine that with his admission in 890 that he secretly wants to be Superman. I don't think this is... As I mentioned, I don't think Lex literally wants to be Superman, but he wants that adulation. This is a dreamlike representation of that. I don't think this is actually what Lex wants, but a representation of that. And we get the the Three Stooges saying, oh, Mr. Mind was just controlling us. I'm not so sure I'm ready to believe that, but let's be honest. Lex basically gets what he wants out of them, so why should he care? Uh, page 27 Lois tells Lex that the fact that she was in those fantasies when he was being held upside down weirds her out. Asks what she was like. Why would that weird her out? Um, a, she's a robot, and she actually acknowledges that. But why would... Uh, it just doesn't make sense why it would weird her out. Or does it? Ah, see what I did there? Little teaser. And Deathstroke, appearing on page 30. To give you a little bit, a uh, quick bio of Deathstroke. He first appeared in Teen Titans number two from 1980. He was originally called just the Terminator or Slade Wilson, his real name, but the name changed to avoid confusion with the movie. Um, Slade became really prominent with the Teen Titans storyline, the Judas contract, where he inserted Terra into the team, learning the team's secrets, gaining their trust only to screw them over and decimate them. Now, the team came back, but it was a harsh storyline, and they really were emotionally scarred after that. Really a turning point in that book and those characters. Uh, Slade became so popular, he got his own series, which went 61 issues with four annuals. And I guess if I'm going to explain Slade Wilson, uh, Deathstroke the Terminator, I would describe him as the villain equivalent to Batman. He's a master strategist. He's a master fighter hand-to-hand -hand and with weapons. He is a force to be reckoned with. And we're going to see that next issue. However, what is it that scares Deathstroke the Terminator? What makes him professionally scared? We're going to find out, but right after this, I'm going to play you a quick promo as I take a break and get something to drink. And then when we come back, we're going to look at Action Comics 892 and 893. Lancers. I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. 
An enemy we don't yet fully understand. We were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com. And that was the promo for Green Lantern's Light. When you are done listening to this episode, go check that out at GreenLanternsLight.com. But for now, let's jump into Action Comics 892, cover dated October 2010, went on sale August 25th of the same year. It has two covers. One shows Lex Luthor in his power armor punching Deathstroke in his face. Punching that dirty turkey in his face. Um, the other features Superman racing the Flash. Now the Deathstroke cover is by David Finch and Joe Weems. The other cover with the Flash and Superman racing for no apparent reason because that doesn't occur was by Ivan Reese and Claire Albert and resembles Superman 199 which we covered two episodes ago. Uh, but the content within is the Black Ring Part 3. Written by Paul Cornell, penciled by Pete Woods, inked by Pere Perez, lettered by Rob Lay, colored by Brad Anderson, and edited by Matt Idelson. And with this, Lex Expedition begins at the Ross Shelf in Antarctica, where his team, which includes himself, Lois, his assistant Mr. Spaulding, who we saw firing the scientist, two mercenaries named Mrs. Jessup and Mr. Finch, and Deathstroke, begin searching for the anomalous energy. Lex is still musing on his kidnap and fantasies, wondering why Mr. Mind had him held upside down. Lois suggests that it was to increase the flow of blood to his head, increase the potency of the fantasy. Reaching a bluff, they spot a giant black orb. Pay dirt, you think? Deathstroke makes his way down to the orb to investigate ahead of the others, as Spaulding shows Lex a chronometer. Chronometer measures time of some kind. And it seems that the energy from the Black Rings went through time as well as space. Meanwhile, Deathstroke begins feeling a lot of fear and freaks out, professionally of course, and then rushes in to attack everybody. Lex dons his power armor as Deathstroke decimates all of the cannon fodder technicians accompanying the group 
and going toe-to-toe with Deathstroke, Jesse Jessup freaks out and starts trying to kill everybody, so Lois decks her and incapacitates the mercenary. As Lex's fight with Deathstroke continues, he tries reasoning with Slade, but Slade isn't having it, and Lex begins to feel the overwhelming effects of the Black Ring energy take over. Refusing to let his intellect go, Lex fights off the effects as Spalding continues to analyze the Black Orb, and then something peculiar happens. The scanners cause the orb to not dissipate, but they change. The energy changes. The scans change the energy while recording the data. And with the orb gone, Deathstroke comes back to his senses, realizing that he almost killed his employer, which Lex uses to renegotiate his price. Lex realizes that by changing the energy, mutating it into something powerful, but not something that alters the consciousness, they are creating something new and something worth killing for. Elsewhere in the world, a large figure enters a secure chamber. Somebody identifies himself to the computer as Master Enters, and that that somebody stands in the secure room with another black orb is Gorilla Grodd. And the issue ends. Uh, Cover 1. I mentioned cover 1 is straightforward, it's dynamic. Um, Still, cover 2, why? Why Why Superman and the Flash? Gorilla Grodd appears at the end, and Gorilla Grodd is a Flash villain, but Deathstroke really isn't. Well, I guess technically if it's Wally being the Flash, which would be accurate at this time, I can see it, but it, is, it, is, it has nothing to do with anything. Um, so let's get into stuff that does. The journey begins, apparently on Hoth. Um, actually, the Ross Ice Shelf is a real place, as many of these places will be. It's the largest ice shelf in Antarctica at 188,000 square miles. It's about the size of France. Uh, moving to page two, Spalding is growing in my awesome book because he shuts Jesse and Finch down. You got to be hardcore to go toe to toe with Luthor on the daily. So, even though we know nothing about Spalding, we know he's he's good at what he does. Page three, Mister Mind, um, talking or pardon me, Lois talked about Mister Mind um, being an expert on mentality. Lois mentioned that the blood flow to the head might be a hint. Might not be, but it is. Um, Page four, we have a giant black sphere in the middle of the ice. That could be important. I love the line, professionally scared by Deathstroke. Um, Deathstroke's not somebody you would picture being scared. And of course, if he's going to do it, he's going to be professional about it because this is what he does. And, you know, Lex, by contrast, is is just calmly monologuing on page seven as Deathstroke is practically peeing himself. So I love the juxtaposition of these two characters. Um, on page 9, when Lex armors up, I immediately think of Exo Man of War, which was a Valiant comic from the 90s. And if you don't remember Valiant comics, you probably weren't collecting in the 90s. They were this comic that really, even prior to Image coming out, challenged the big two of Marvel and DC. For a while there, they were even calling it the big three. And then it felt like overnight, the rose uh, just wilted. Uh, the pedals just fell off. Felt like there was just a big crash and burn. It wasn't in reality. It was relatively slow, quick, but it was just uh, a good set of books. And I'm segueing back because, well, Lex is awesome, especially on ten to eleven. He's where we saw him fighting in the fantasy realm last issue. He's armored up and he's actually beating somebody down in the physical realm, which I think is great. And on page 13, did somebody order a girl fight? Because Lois and Jessup go at it. 
And page 14, Lex is t- really talking to Slade, t- trying to say, oh, it's me, it's your daughter Rose, which is a sore subject. So I just want to say, yes, Lex, yes, let's taunt the deadly professional killer who's off his rocker. Sure, let's let's do that. Uh, but what is it on page 16 about Lex that enables him to be able to fight the effects of the Black Ring energy? Is it his intellect? Um, is it something more? That I'm not sure. I mean, we never really get an answer to that. And then once everything's over on page 17 and Slade's back to himself, I love his calm reaction. Well, that was regrettable. And of course, Lex immediately knocks his price down because Lex is Lex. And at the end, we get Gorilla Grodd, which I'm excited about. Um, Gorilla Grodd made his debut in The Flash, number 106, Flash Volume 1 to be specific, from 1959. Uh, Basically, to give you an overview, he's an intelligent gorilla with telepathic powers imbued by a crashing spacecraft or meteor, depending on the telling of the origin. And uh, he actually created more and more gorillas like him uh, with mind powers, where they're basically affixed with helmets, giving them intelligence. They all live in a place called Gorilla City, which Grodd eventually took over. Uh, It's a a bunch of politics there. But looking at Gorilla Grodd, let's start off with Action Comics number 893 from November 2010 with an on-sale date of September 29th of 2010. The cover features, well, Gorilla Grodd rushing at Lex Luthor in his armor, with which the armor is looking beat up. Um, Once again, the cover was by David Finch, this time inked by Richard Friend. And in the Black Ring Part 4, we get another story by Paul Carnell. This one is actually penciled by Sean Chen. Inked by Wayne Foucher, lettered by Rob Lay, colored by Brad Anderson, and edited by Matt Idelson. So Pete Woods is not on board for this issue. Lex uh, Lex's journey continues, and we end up in Bwindi National Park in Uganda, where he, Lois, Spalding, Jessup, and Finch make their way into the jungle, all the while being watched by large gorillas. Large gorillas armed with automatic weapons. The gorillas telepathically report back to Gorilla Grodd. The humans are heading directly for Grodd's base, and they smell strange. Like too much perfume. Seeking a weakness in Luthor, Grodd goes to his containment cell filled with procured brains and consumes the brain of a former LexCorp employee, Mr. Cardington, absorbing the departed's knowledge of Lex. Back at the expedition team, the soldier gorillas attack and capture Lois, bringing her to Grodd, who gets an unpleasant surprise when he tries to eat her head because robots don't go down well and her heavy perfume will take ages to wash out of his mouth. No worries. Grodd will use his mind powers to probe her android mind and find Lex Luthor's weakness. Grodd immediately rushes out to attack Lex and company with his battle spoon and beheads Luthor in one deft move. Ready to savor the brain power of the Man of Steel's nemesis, Grodd instead gets a large electrical shock, rendering him unconscious. In a flashback, we learn that the Mr. Cardington... Was uh, that uh, Grodd 8 was a plant that Lex sent to the park. After telling Cardington a few intimate details and giving him some immunizations, Lex expected Grodd to eat the man. Back at Grodd's base, the real Luthor and Spalding slip out of their disguises as the two guerrilla guards who transported Lois to Grodd. Turns out, Lex had a plan for that, and it included putting drugs in Cardington's system, which would skew Grodd's judgment and bring out his bestial side, and the android that Grodd killed reads security codes from Grodd's brain, which relays to Lois, who uses a facsimile of Grodd's hand and voice to gain access to the secure chamber we saw last issue. 
Luthor and Spalding probe the Black Ring energy, changing it as Grodd wakes up elsewhere really, really ticked. And at the base, Spalding permanently shuts down his android duplicate as Lois watches, and then Luthor and company make their escape by helicopter, but Grodd takes aim with a powerful rifle and blasts Luthor in the chest. And the lifeless body of Lex Luthor falls from the helicopter, striking a cliff on its way down to the ground, where it finally lands and remains motionless. And yet, Lex is standing up. He's standing up and he's looking down at his own body. He sees himself laying dead on the ground, and when he looks around, he sees the personification of death perched on a rock, sunning herself. She has apparently come for Luthor, which means that he is well and truly dead. So, awkward. Um, page one, as they're making their way through the jungle, Lex tells his friends, that they're, tells his team that the gorillas are more afraid of you than you are of them. Um, Lex, dude, that might be true, but these gorillas also have machine guns. Um, once again, we're at a real place, Bwindi National Park in Uganda. Uh, the world, the word Bwindi means impenetrable, which for all intents and purposes, the park really is. It's a lot of thick vegetation, very fissured landscape. And of course, Lex just walks right in. Uh, page two, I love Grodd's calm demeanor. Oh, gee, it's not weaponized, right? Um, but on page three, how exactly does one procure a closet full of brains? It's disturbing. Uh, page four, Jessup and Finch are making a concentrated effort not to look at the boss with the robot as Lois pricks, or Lex pricks his hand on a thorn and Lois puts her finger, his finger in her mouth to soothe it. Um, yeah, very awkward for Jessup and Finch, making a very hardcore effort. Um, page seven, gotta like one of the reasons I like uh, I like Grodd. I like a villain that casually eats people's heads. But when you're eating uh, somebody's head and it doesn't go right, that's got to be awkward. Um, so he tries to eat Lois and it just doesn't go well. I w it's just a great sequence because he's got his mouth wrapped around her head and she simply says, um, excuse me, awkwardness. Um, page nine, I want a battle spoon. Honestly, not enough people use spoons for weapons. And that leads to one of the best beheadings ever. Grodd cuts his head off with a spoon. Makes me think of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Um, so, as Grodd is eating the android Lex's head, the decoy, on page 11, he says, oh, I get a hint of electricity. Now, if you or I got a hint of electricity, more than likely, a moment later, we're dead. Uh, he's like, this tastes like a Lex, and you're gone. Um, Grodd kind of shakes it off, so it must be good to be Grodd. And... The thing, uh, one of the big stipulations I have is page 12. One of the big problems I have. Because it's on page 12 that we get the flashback. Revealing that uh, Cardington was a plant. Luthor intended uh, Grodd to eat his brain to get that false information. But I think the scene would have been better if it wasn't a flashback. If it had served, you know, maybe a scene in Action Comics 8 and 90. So we saw it there in the first issue and didn't think much of it. And it pays off. I think that would have gone much better because it really is kind of an Ocean's Eleven scenario we're seeing here. And I wish we'd gotten a, gotten that set up early on. Not that it's bad. Um, it is entertaining. I definitely laughed out loud. But eh, better to be told that up front. Uh, kind of do a Chekhov's gun. Um, on page 13, uh, Robot Lois sprouts gorilla hands. She can pop out of gorilla hands. And part of me really wonders 
if Lex installed that for this particular event or if it serves, you know, other purposes. Because he does mention that he, he likes the voice and Lois tells Lex that she will keep it for later. Ew. Um, better, I'm going to move on. Um, on page 15, the android Luther either died with a smile on its face or it pro- uh, Lex programmed it so that post-mortem it smiles broadly, which is Lex giving the finger to Gorilla Grodd. Either way, excellent. Excellent. And page 16 on the bottom panel, Robot Lois sees how these robots, which are very much like herself, can be deactivated. Uh, It's got to be mind-blowing, and that is laying some trenches for the character that are going to play themselves out in interesting ways. Not in ways that you think. I mentioned that Lex falls from the helicopter and strikes a a cliff. Very much uh, Temple of Doom style. Um, So... That guy scraping his head on the cliff as he goes down still gets to me. And then we get to page 20. Death. Death arrives. And it's not just a Grim Reaper. It's actually Death from Neil Gaiman's Sandman, who made appearance in number 8. Sister of Morpheus or Dream. Morpheus, sorry. Not Morpheus. Um, she basically does exactly what the Grim Reaper does. And collects souls. Except that she's personable and, I guess to be honest, she's downright perky and likable. She generally appeared in the Sandman book, but she did have her own miniseries, Death, the High Cost of Living. She's wildly popular, and she's a very solid Vertigo character, which a lot of times I'm not a fan of Vertigo characters, really those who nest themselves deeply in that coming over to the mainstream. However, I'm reminded that Morpheus, who is the title character of Sandman, did cross paths with Martian Manhunter and Mr. Miracle in early issues of the title. But the question I that really plagues me about this, the thing that bothers me, is I thought that Neil Gaiman had a deal with with uh, DC and Vertigo that nobody can use his characters once he leaves the book, which is something that I I did confirm it happened. So I don't see where or if there was permission given to Paul Cornell if Paul Cornell had his uh, Neil Gaiman's blessing to use Death. So very very odd to see that appear, but not unwelcome and so that is the first installment of our coverage of the black ring and we end with lex luthor laying dead facing death literally how do we resolve our way out of this one well that is something we're gonna have to find out next week at this very moment i am going to take myself a short break play a quick promo and then i'm going to come back we're going to wrap this episode up with a fantastic episode of superman the animated series really you do want to stick around so i will be right back after this on may 30th 2011 dc comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles and the internet broke in half Not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It it the it flame flames flames on the side of my face, breathing breathless. Heaving breaths. Heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. 
The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. And our final stop this week is the sixth episode of the second season of Superman the Animated Series, Identity Crisis, which introduces Bizarro. The episode was written by Robert Goodman with Joe R. Lansdale and directed by Kurt Gaeta. Originally aired on September 15, 1997. On top of our normal cast, Tim Daly, Dana Delaney, and Clancy Brown, we have Lisa Edelstein returning as Mercy Graves, Tim Daly doing double duty as Bizarro, Robert Ito as Dr. Tang, John Ribbonow as Helicopter Pilot, Joe Lala, Maitre D, Kendall Cunningham as Tommy, and then Ryan O'Donohue and James Cronin playing boy number one and boy number two, respectively. And we jump right in as a young boy hangs precariously over, uh, over the streets from an electrical tower, scared to climb down, even as his friends chide him. The boy is rescued when Superman does his thing and helps the kid down, followed by a bit of a fatherly lecture. Superman leaves the boys and flies through Metropolis to the adulation of the city and spots a police chase occurring, and Lois is chasing the chase. She is Lois Lane, after all. That's a scoop, but she's going quite quick over some curvy roads uh, overlooking a bluff. And this is actually where Superman takes care of the fleeing criminals by intercepting them. But Lois, not aware that the entire chase has come to a dead stop, rounds a corner, which nearly takes her car off the edge of a cliff. But it does fling her passenger from the car. And that passenger is Clark Kent. Wait, what? Yes. Luckily, Superman rescues Clark and proceeds to his second lecture of the episode, advising Lois to drive more. Carefully. But he backs that up by asking Lois to dinner, and Lois accepts as Clark watches. She tells Superman to meet her at the Daily Planet at 8. Okay, what goes on here, right? As soon as Superman leaves, Clark decides to take a walk, which really means that he's doing a shirt rip and flying after his doppelganger to investigate. Superman finds the double rescuing a helicopter, but the double is developing white patches on his skin. Superman questions him, but basically tells him that his makeup is rubbing off. And this enrages the double, and he punches the real Superman into a building as more of his skin starts turning white. 
Superman rebounds and finds his duplicate hunched over in an alley, now in full white skin with the costume of more purple. The duplicate stands revealed as Bizarro and demands that Superman just leave him alone. He punches Superman and then flies off. Bizarro tur- returns to a lab in the mountains outside Metropolis and tells his creator that he has a problem. And his creator steps into the light, revealing himself as Lex Luthor. Bizarro is confused, believing himself to be the real Superman, and tries to rationalize why there are two of him. Luthor demands to know what is happening from Dr. Tang, who says that his alien DNA is breaking down. They need to destroy him, but Lex wants to study him. Because even as Bizarro's language begins to degrade as well. And Bizarro wants to know, what am me? Mercy states that he is Bizarro, and this enrages the monster who flies out of the lab to prove he is Superman. Bizarro's first stop? A crane, demolishing a building. Bizarro decides to save the building, which means fighting the wrecking ball. The crane is flung high into the air, and Superman sees it fly by, rushes after it, and stops it right before it crashes into a wedding in the park. Bizarro next comes on a bridge that is lifting up to allow the ship to pass through. He decides to fix the broken bridge. He pushes the two halves back in place, which causes the ship to nearly crash into the bridge, but once again Superman arrives to slow the ship, averting another disaster from happening due to Bizarro's attempted heroics. Later that night, on the roof of the Daily Planet, Lois prepares to meet Superman for her date, but is surprised when Bizarro steps out of the shadows. Lois is terrified, despite Bizarro saying that he would never hurt her, and Superman shows up, taking off Bizarro, who tries to protect Lois from Superman, knocking off the Daily Planet globe in the process. As Superman catches the globe, Lois stumbles backwards from Bizarro and falls off the roof where Bizarro catches her, but instead of putting her back on the roof, he flies off with our fearless female reporter. And they are both gone when Superman returns to the rooftop and places the globe back in place. Later at a fancy restaurant, Lois and Bizarro eat dinner as Bizarro exposits on being, well, Bizarro. Lois turns the dinner into an interview and Bizarro reveals that he was born in a lab and decides to take Lois there. He whisks her off to the lab, leaving her tape recorder behind. At the lab, Lois sees many, many clones of Superman in test tubes, all gestating, and Lex, with all the subtlety that we know from and expect from him, reveals that he is behind the clones. Back at the restaurant, Superman finds the tape recorder with Bizarro mentioning the mountain lab. While at said lab, Lex tells Lois that he used some of Superman's blood from the run, uh, run in with Superman with Lex's mechanical dinosaur to create the clones. Bizarro examines the clones, the reality of his birth becoming clearer, and he grapples with that when Dr. Tang shoots him with the disabling taser as Lex starts the self-destruct sequence for the lab. Lois protests, leaving Bizarro there, and the creature begins to lose it and smash up the lab, clones and all, and blocks the exit. And also destroys the terminal to cancel the self-destruct. Uh, that can't be good, right? Well, luckily Superman arrives and grapples with Bizarro, but Lex points out that they are sitting on top of enough explosives to even level Superman. So Superman clears the path of the chopper, but as they're escaping, Lois gets pinned under a beam. Lex and Dr. Tang decide to leave her there in a helicopter, and Superman gets Lois free as Bizarro watches, processing that this is Superman saving Lois. And the roof of the lab begins to come down, and Bizarro holds it up long enough to tell to tell Superman to get Lois out. Superman complies and gets Lois out as the whole lab goes up with Bizarro inside. Superman and Lois fly back to Metropolis, wondering if Bizarro is still alive. Superman says that he hopes so. 
Bizarro turned out to have a good heart. And the episode closes with Lois telling Superman that Bizarro came from good stock as they finish their flight home. Ah, what an excellent episode. Um, starting at the beginning, the lecture Superman gives, um, well, the whole opening sequence feels like Superman should cap it off with knowing is half the battle. But honestly, it's charming, and charm goes a long way. I love the brief flying scene with the city folk musingly praising Superman, kind of like something out of Beauty and the Beast. And the revelation of Clark Kent as he's he's flung from the vehicle was done excellently. We really don't expect it until he is in Bizarro's arms. It was a bit of a gut punch, honestly. Tim Daly is, I think he's really starting to get into the Clark Kent side of Superman with a little little nuances like his distracted voice. Uh, Clearly, the character is getting a little bit more fleshed out in Daly's head. And plus, we get an awesome shirt rip, which changes to a transition, using the symbol to crossfade to the next scene. So the animation is moving much smoother, too. The production is getting better. Now, as far as the first time we see Bizarro, I love this rendition of Bizarro. The design is superb. I love the sort of distorted way that they build his body. But how does his costume also kind of change with his skin? How does the symbol get changed? Not sure there. I guess you could say it's Superman, if they were cloning Superman's costume, maybe, because of the Kryptonian blankets. I just, hard, hard, hard sell on that one, but I still like the design, so I'll let it go. Um, I was really happy, but not surprised that we got Lex in the episode. Uh, He's been absent for too long, and Clancy Brown can chew some scenery better than the Tasmanian Devil. Uh, For example, when Bizarro flies out of the lab's roof, leaving a hole, sending debris down to the floor, Luthor tells Mercy that the damage is coming out of her pay. It merges so perfectly with the animation and the design that you see Alex Luthor that's better than Spacey or Hackman combined. And you know, we get some really great Superman lines in this episode. Uh, when he first meets Bizarro, he says, I'm a big fan, I, I just have to ask for your autograph. And then we have the scene where he, he saves the crane from smashing up an outdoor wedding and quips, don't ask me, I just catch him. And another great reveal occurs on the Daily Planet rooftop where the mood is serene and quiet until Bizarro steps out of the shadows and then the music rises. It's appropriately juxtaposing the terror of Bizarro while also delivering the moment of pity for him. And, you know, pity is what I regularly feel for Bizarro. Uh, From his first appearance in Superboy 68, he's basically been misunderstood. He's a simple soul who generally just wants to help. Now, there have been different iterations on Bizarro that go a different way, but this is, seems to be the most prevalent one. Um, he's an incredibly sympathetic character, but at once he's a terrifying monster because he has so much raw power at his disposal that his attempts at helping can be deadly. Now, Superman has learned over his career how to scale back on using his powers. He basically has this restraint because he understands that if he slaps Jimmy on the back too hard, Olsen's lungs are going to propel themselves right out of his ribcage. Bizarro has no concept of this. Um, A, he just wasn't raised. He was grown. Uh, B, I mean, he's a gentle and kind soul at the, at the core, but his mind can't understand it, and that lack of understanding makes him dangerous, not only to the people of Metropolis, but to Superman himself. And the Daily Planet rooftop scene takes this into account. Uh, Bizarro wants to care for Lois and protect her from a perceived threat in Superman, but in doing so causes unspeakable danger to her and to those on the streets below the Daily Planet building. One of the things that excited me most about this episode was Lex's revelation that he got Superman's blood 
after the fight with the mechanical dinosaur. Now, for those that have been with the show for a while, that was way back in the fifth episode of the first season, a little uh, little piece of home. The show didn't have to make this callback. It didn't need to maintain this continuity, and yet it did, and that's going the extra mile. Uh, they also did an admirable admirable job of making Bizarro's realization of being a clone heartbreaking, like a child lashing out. It really just kills. I mean, the whole scene nails it, especially the lifeless clone sliding across the floor in its own juices. It's disturbing. It's gross. It's scary. But the ultimate moment for the episode was Bizarro sacrificing himself and the look on his face as he realizes what he really is. Um, it really, watching it, it, it brings a lump to my throat. Um, Superman saves Lois is his mantra. And even through his distorted understanding, Bizarro makes this noble choice. He may be an inferior clone of Superman, but in the end he became the hero and Lois calls back to tell him that. So the last thing that Bizarro sees is Lois in Superman's arm calling back that you are a hero. He gets that edification acknowledgement from Lois Lane. Just take my heart, rip it out now. This was... Such a great episode, not just of this series, but one of the greatest Superman moments on television. Um, five S shields out of five, no question about it. But that brings us to the end of this week's episode. So next week we continue the Black Ring. Lex Luthor is dead. Long live Lex Luthor and Vandal Savage and the Secret Six. Yeah, that's right. Until then, I am J. David Weeder. Keep on fighting for truth and justice forever. This has been Superman Forever Radio, a NatWorld production. You can find the show on iTunes with backlogs of episodes, where you can also leave a review. The show finds its home at supermanforever.com, and is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. You can friend the show on Facebook at, at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio, and email the show at mail at supermanforever.com, David can be found on Twitter at twitter.com slash superdaveweeder. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, are all properties of Warner Brothers Entertainment and DC Entertainment. All music and sound clips used on the show are copyright their respective owners and no infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. 